The FDA has approved the first vaccine for RSV, a respiratory virus associated with as many as 10,000 deaths among older adults annually and 80,000 hospital visits for children under five every year. For now, the vaccine is approved for adults 60 years and older. This is Pulse Check. I'm Ruth Reeder. The Drug Enforcement Administration will continue to allow doctors to prescribe controlled substances by telehealth while the agency finishes writing final rules governing prescribing now that the COVID public health emergency is ending. During the public health emergency, doctors were permitted to remotely prescribe important medications like Adderall for ADHD and buprenorphine for opioid use disorder. Earlier this year, the DEA signaled that it would curtail pandemic-era rules, mandating that many medications be prescribed in person. However, it received a stunning 38,000 comments on those proposed telemedicine rules and may be reconsidering. Meanwhile, Eli Lilly's new treatment for Alzheimer's disease appeared to slow cognitive decline in a late-stage clinical trial, the company said. It will soon seek full FDA approval for the drug. It's called Donamimab. Nearly half of participants who received the drug had no cognitive decline after a year, compared to nearly 30% who showed no decline on the placebo. If approved, it will be the third drug in its class to meet FDA approval standards. The Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services has restrictions on covering this new set of of Alzheimer's drugs, and advocates are concerned patients won't be able to afford them with annual costs reaching $26,000. And Francis Collins, the former director of NIH and one-time leader of the Human Genome Project, has proposed a plan to help Africa build its capacity for genomics, the study of the complete DNA set in a person or other organism. Carmen Pond explains what he announced at the Milken Institute Global Conference this week. Hey, Ruth. Thanks for having me. So you've been following some of the health sessions at the Milken Institute Global Conference in Beverly Hills this week. What are you hearing? What are you learning? What's going on there? One of the big things I learned is that Francis Collins, who once led the Human Genome Project and obviously is the former director of the National Institutes of Health, is actually working on what he called a business plan to develop a number of genomic centers in Africa. I usually cover global health. And he said this business plan would be about $130 million a year, and it would help with mapping genomes on the continent. He did talk about how there's so much genomic diversity in Africa which is thought to be the cradle of humanity and about how the centers, which he sees co-funded by the host countries where he sees African scientists in the lead would work on sort of like anything from pandemic preparedness, vaccine development to potentially coming up with a cure for HIV AIDS, maybe through gene editing. So that was very interesting and a bit surprising to me. I didn't know that he has turned his attention to, to Africa and has put his passion about genome editing and and, you know, his knowledge of the genome into sort of like going on the continent of Africa, which was left at the back of the queue for, for access to vaccines and medicines and diagnostic during the pandemic, but which now, you know, because of that is, you know, is trying to build up many of the things that they didn't have during the pandemic. The other thing that he talked about that was very interesting was about his hepatitis C plan, which he also managed to get into the fiscal year 2024 budget request from President Biden. So he basically said this plan that he has in mind would be a sort of like five-year plan of test and treat. You develop point of care test, you test people, and if they turn out positive, you treat them right away. Obviously, hepatitis C, you know, can lead to, to liver cancer. It's an infectious disease, but do we do have 
the cure for them. It's just that so many people in the United States don't still have access to it. So he did say that you spend six billion over five years and you would get nine billion in healthcare costs that you save because you don't have to have liver transplants. You don't have to treat people for liver cancer. So he's very passionate about this plan. And, and it was very interesting to hear him about it and to hear his vision about how that'll play out. And obviously there was a lot of talk about preventing the next pandemics. Experts did warn that there's an increased risk of this pandemics happening in our lifetime. And they talked about the solutions that we should be looking at in the world, but also mainly governments and policymakers. A lot of people are tired of talking about pandemics. So what did experts say policymakers should do to prepare for the next one? What were some of their recommendations? One of the main things that they warn about is that because of climate change, the risk of pandemics has increased by a lot. One example is the extreme weather events, such as the floods in Pakistan last year, that basically increased the number of cases of malaria. You also have had cyclones in Africa that submerged hospitals, uh, but also made the malaria season a lot worse. So, you know, kids are getting sick with malaria and there's no hospital nearby to treat them because they've been flooded. So there's a lot of solutions on the table. Obviously, there's been some financing put forward. There are a lot of solutions on the table that they recommended. Obviously, one of them is providing financing for developing countries to improve their preparedness that would involve having a sort of like strong health system, being able to detect when a new virus is starting to infect people and being able to respond to that as soon as possible. The White House put out a national biodefense strategy last year in which they talked about speeding up the time that it takes to develop vaccines for a new virus, to develop the things that were developed during the pandemic, such as tests and medicines, and also helping out countries around the world to be prepared. Obviously, one of the big issues is equity. As we saw during the pandemic, many countries didn't have access to all these tools as soon as they became available in sort of like the most developed countries. And that's one of the main issues that needs to be tackled going forward that, you know, when what they call a countermeasure is available, it becomes available to people everywhere. And it doesn't matter whether you live in a developing country. Is there a sense of how much buy-in there is for some of this preparedness or whether sort of the global community is, is ready to collaborate on preparing sort of more countries for another pandemic? There is buy-in. I think the, the proof is in the pudding. We will have to see how much of that talk actually translates into action and into money on the table. One of the main things that has happened over the past year is the creation of the so-called pandemic fund, which is hosted by the World Bank and in which countries put money. So far, they've raised about $1.6 billion and developing countries can send projects. And if they get accepted, they would get financing to improve, for example, their lab networks, their capacity capacity to detect a new disease and other similar things. Another big debate that is happening at the World Health Organization is the so-called pandemic agreement or accord, where they're trying to negotiate basically an international convention that would put into international law some of these equity issues that we discussed. They're, they're very far from an agreement, so we don't know what's going to come out of that. There have been experts that were at the forefront of the pandemic response in, in the United States or in other 
other countries like the United Kingdom who you know are concerned that we're moving back into this neglect phase. We panicked when the pandemic hit. Everyone wanted to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And now because it's starting to be behind us, people are relaxing again and not much is being done. So there is a lot of debate. There's a lot of awareness that we must do better next time and we must be better prepared. But as we see, there's so many other crises happening around the world that distract attention and funding. So I think we will be able to see maybe in the next few years how much of that preparedness is actually put into sort of like concrete plans and actions and budgets. Was there anything that surprised you at the conference? One of my surprises featured an interview with the administrator of the Drug Enforcement Administration, Anne Milgram. She was interviewed by New York Times columnist Nick Kristoff about obviously the poisoning fentanyl overdoses that have killed so many people around the country in the last few years. To me, that showed how important this issue has become, how crucial it is for people that attend this kind of conference to be aware of what is going on. And she did talk about the recent indictment of the three sons of El Chapo, who is the former head of the Sinaloa drug cartel, and how they have basically fueled this fentanyl epidemic and so much of that drug into the United States, which led to so many people, especially between 18 and 45 years old, dying. So that was interesting to hear from her in the context of this conference and to see that people are becoming sort of more aware of this crisis and also looking at what should be done. And obviously it's a complex problem. It has domestic, but also international solutions. But there's so many things that one has to do to respond to it. And so many things have to work properly, such as cooperation with countries like Mexico in China, you know, in some cases not really going that well. It sounds like it was an interesting few days at this conference. Definitely. We had other colleagues on the ground who put together a daily edition of the Global Insider newsletter from it. But definitely the sort of like the hell track of the conference was fascinating to me. Well, thanks so much for talking to me about it. Great talking to you, Ruth. Thank you for having me. And that's our show. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Afra Abdullah and Annie Reese are our producers. Our healthcare team editors are Eli Reyes, Dan Goldberg, Barbara Van Tyne, Beth Belton, and Sean Zeller. Jenny Ament is the executive producer of Audio at Politico. I'm Ruth Reeder. Subscribe and follow Pulse Check for a new episode every day. And subscribe to our newsletters where you can read this reporting. Pulse, Future Pulse, and Prescription Pulse. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.